All right, let's go back to Revelation 6, the opening of the sixth seal. And I will say just briefly again that my approach to this has been very as consistent as I can make it, asking God how is this relevant right now, not discounting that what anybody else would teach about future things, but as a revelation, it should be able to speak to our situation right now. And to do that, what I have done in reading and other things is looking at symbolism or situations that are in the Bible that match these. So when in a few minutes when we read about a fig tree, I will stay consistent in that teaching of the fig tree with it being Israel. So uh, just didn't see any point in teaching this the way it's always been taught, uh, that you can read that and you can get that anywhere. I just ask God a new question. How can this be relevant to us in our story right now? So Revelation 6, beginning with verse 12, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree cast her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. So we have a picture here of a major cataclysmic event, so severe, and in John's view, I will mention a couple of different times, that it would be very difficult for anyone to interpret this literally. I know that he's seeing something, but to take these and make these literal events, especially in this one, is pretty difficult, because actually for these things to happen is truly impossible. So it moves us to at least ask the question, what else is here? So the opening of this uh, seal sets off a great earthquake. So if you can, in your imagination, when Jesus opens this sixth seal, that's still holding this redemptive plan. If the redemptive plan is going to be released, then this has to be done. So the opening of it causes this great earthquake. Well, again, this is one of those places where I have to go back and say, okay, where else have we seen earthquakes? Where else in the story of the scripture has, have, have we seen them? And the, the two most prominent places is when Jesus was crucified and at his resurrection. So I go back and begin to say, what is it that they're telling us? Well, earthquakes seem to be connected with these major changes the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. So even in our simplest symbolism, we recognize that the shaking of something is when great change occurs. So an earthquake when he died, one when he was resurrected. So these two earthquakes seem to be a testimony of something changing. The old was becoming new in these moments. So again, I'm, I'm not going to take it any further. That's the most significant earth-shaking that I can see within the scripture. So after a great earthquake happens when the seal is open, uh, it was as if there were a sudden, complete eclipse of the sun when it says, the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood. And it says, then the whole starry heaven caved in on the earth. So this is one of those, when we ask ourselves, what did John really see? 
because it's almost impossible for this to be a literal event. I mean, what's the size of the stars? For the stars to collapse upon the earth, what would be the survival rate of that? It would be zero. So we get a glimpse that John was seeing something, and it's very difficult then to try to make this an event that is, as, as it's often described. Again, I don't know what, exactly what he saw, but we know that it can't be literal because it creates an impossible situation. So the whole sky split apart, and it was rolled up like a scroll. Again, this is the vision that John is seeing. So what a, a monumental, overwhelming vision that John saw. So what does this catastrophic event symbolize? If this is what he saw, all of this happening in front of him, all of this stuff happening with the things in the heavens, the simplest thing I can tell you is that the sun and the moon and the stars give us natural light. Again, simple symbolism. Light in the scripture is usually directly related to knowledge. The light of his countenance is telling us it's connected to knowledge. So one of the things that we've always kind of recognized is that there will someday be the light that comes from God himself. That these forms of light won't be necessary so the simplest thing I can say is that I believe the sun and the moon and the stars is what gives us natural light. And in studying the rest of it, I would say it's really what gives us this very natural knowledge, that natural light. So suddenly, in all of this catastrophic event, all the confidence in man's thinking, all the confidence in man's ability caves in. Even within the religious world, what are we trusting today? We're trusting man's thoughts and man's opinions and man's abilities. That's why we elevate them the way that we do. We elevate a, a person's ability to speak, to write books. We elevate those things because we're fascinated with the abilities that men and women have. Well, I can tell you, for the redemptive plan to, to fully come, there has to be a collapse of that natural thinking. And so there's at least a chance that what we're seeing here is the collapse of that natural thinking, the collapse of what you and I have offered. Again, I use this illustration, I use it Sunday. You know, if I've got two balloons laying here on this podium and I fill one of them with breath from my lungs, I can tie it and it's going to sit right here. The next one I fill up with helium, it's going to go to the ceiling unless I've got something tied to it. Why? Because that balloon can only take on the nature of what's put in it. I like that picture because once the Holy Spirit is in me, I now take on his characteristics. I take on his capacity. I take on that which he's capable of doing and not the limited stuff that I'm capable of doing. We need to get that. We need to understand that the spirit living in us creates a greater capacity, a greater capability than what I have within myself. So when we don't see within the religious world, when we don't see supernatural, when we don't see things that we can't explain, what is it telling us? What's inside of us? It cannot be the spirit of God. So what are we left with to guide us? It's us, our thoughts, our abilities, our capabilities. And the redemptive plan of God, that's so that we can step into the fullness that's written on this scroll, can't happen 
until man's thinking collapses. Where did we see it before? Well, a little bit of a different story. But what happened at the Tower of Babel? What were they leaning on? The capabilities of themselves. And God says, no, I, I will never let you build on your capabilities. So we get the story, the confusion, because it's in that that they have to build this resilience and this dependency upon God. The stars falling from heaven, again, trying to just stay as simple and clear as I can, I would say that the stars picture the falling of the trusted leaders that have allowed man's thinking to become so prominent. They have fallen from their lofty positions, and I can tell you there are many of them. The moon looks like blood, so it seems to point to the end of that day when it's man's minds and abilities that we're trusting. It's interesting to me, though, that it says that the stars fall. It seems to be almost a a twisted comparison to talk about falling stars falling as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. So how do you draw a comparison between those two things. We get stars falling, and then we get figs falling, unripe figs, off of a fig tree. Well, again, what does the fig tree typically picture? It pictures Israel, but it also is the precursor. It's the beginning, the message of the church. So what's the wind doing to this fig tree? I've got a sycamore tree and two of them in my yard. And one of the most unfortunate things, as beautiful as they are, is that they are self-pruning. What makes them self-pruning? The wind. The wind prunes them. You don't ever have to, unless you want something big cut off of them, you have to prune sycamore trees because the dead will fall out of them because of the wind. And because you have to pick it up every day. But the wind has that ability to shake that which is not supposed to be so that what's supposed to be is left. So the figs falling and the stars falling being similar. Again, if if it pictures Israel and and if it pictures the foreshadowing of the church, the unripe figs are cut out by this mighty wind as the ones that never come to maturity. The unripe figs, that's a key picture here. Because what is that unripe fig that's falling off? It's a fig that never comes to maturity. What is it for man to trust man instead of man to trust God? What are they not doing? They're not stepping into the maturity. They're not living as God designed for a wise man to live, a mature man to live. That sifting process that we've even read among these other seals, these winds begin to shake off, these unripe, immature figs, is telling us of something powerful, it has to happen before the fullness of the redemptive plan can come. I uh, will be careful how I say this. How many churches, especially new churches, seeker churches, whose staff, pastor, and across the board, you won't find one of them that tops 30 years old. I minister to some of those folks because they get in such a mess because they're lacking wisdom. They're lacking maturity. And because they make such strange judgments and offend in such strange ways by the time that they realize they need help, they've got a mess. Again, I spoke on this just a 
few weeks ago that I think there's a great idolatry around the youth culture in the world today, especially in America. We idolize those things of youth. There's nothing wrong. And, you know, when you look at Paul and Barnabas and those who, were, who had younger men with them and training them and teaching them, there's nothing wrong with that. And leaving them in places of responsibility. But they had to be well taught. They had to be well trained. And I just watched so much of this, so much immaturity in church. What would you call it if a pastor is offended because some of his members who need to go somewhere else go to another church? What does that sound like? Sounds like pride, sounds like jealousy, fear. There's a lot of things that can be in that. Maybe it's my age, I don't know. Maybe it's that I don't know any better. I have concluded we're building one kingdom. I have concluded that we are called to be one people. If that call takes somebody, because I've said it before, if I, if I were to preach this church empty, if God sent out that number, then I, I would be tickled to death. I don't have to live in an immaturity that believes somehow that my value is based on how many of you are sitting here. I'm not saying I'd like to see people leave because of the places that they hold and the, the friendships and all the things that go on. I know that's true. I can think of a person who's been going to church here for many months, but I know that his membership was somewhere else. He came and came and came and was very involved, and he came to me one day and said, I need to go home. He said, I hope you're not offended. And I asked him, I said, why in the world would I be offended? You came to an emergency room, and you stayed until you had the healing that you needed. Why would I be upset for you to go back? To take something maybe that you learned or heard, why would I be upset with that? We live, but particularly in ministry, with an extremely low level of maturity. I wish it weren't true, but it is. The level of maturity among ministers is probably lower than the congregations that they serve because of the insecurity that we seem to feel. God sends his wind to do the sifting. So again, what's the, what very often does the wind portray? What happened at Pentecost? Holy Spirit. So what is it that does the sifting? What is it that causes the unripe to fall off? It's the Holy Spirit. So it seems possible even that this comparison is given that we might recognize a spiritual condition of Israel, a spiritual condition of believers that has to be recognized and that will be overcome or the full redemptive plan of God can happen. So I wrote this as one of those notes of relevant truth. The church has been trying to produce spiritual fruit from natural knowledge, and it won't work. Trying to create greatness, trying to create something spectacular and eye-catching, but only doing it from their natural mind. So the mighty wind and an earthquake make evident the fruit that will never mature because it does not have its source in the Spirit. I don't think I would have to convince anyone here of that truth. If it's not of the Spirit, then it's, it's not of God. This is a reference to Romans, and I didn't look it up. I could find it pretty quickly. It's the latter chapters of Romans, when the Scripture says that God will shake everything He's created, all things in heaven and earth, to make sure that we trust an unshakable kingdom. So we couldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be surprised at the shaking that the Holy Spirit does to get us to trust a kingdom that can't be shaken. I can tell you it's pretty rare to find even in church people who can truly say that my faith is in an unshakable kingdom. That the things that I've built around me 
trying to gain security, that I have it in proper proportion to the reality that every one of those things can be so shaken, and God will shake them to make sure I trust an unshakable kingdom. I draw this pretty often for people who, especially young people who are trying to figure out where they're going. On one side of the chart, I'll put, you know, this is where you are, and I'll get them to list over here, what is it that you want? And generally, they will come up with a pretty solid list. They may say money, but I'll change it to security. They want relationships. They want challenges in their life. They want something to fulfill them. And all of them honorable, perfectly fine. And I draw this bridge across from one to the other. And I said, what do you think it's going to take? What are the pillars under this bridge going to have to be so that you can actually attain that stuff over there? And the ones that often make the list is, well, it's, it's money, it's relationships, it's positions, titles, and those kind of things. The unfortunate part for every one of those, if that's a pillar under that bridge, is every one of them can be taken away from you. And not all of them, when one of them falls, that stuff is not even relevant. You realize I can't get it anymore. So what do they have to be so that they can't be shaken? And I could come up with four of them that God could give me, but the reality is what can't be taken from me? My skills can't be taken from me. My personal capability can't be taken from me. No matter what the situation is, what I have, the knowledge I have, can't be taken. No one can touch my work ethic. You might do things to discourage me, but that's completely me. No one can harm my attitude. That's completely me. You may do things I don't like. My attitude's mine. And the last one I put up there is faith. Nobody can touch it. Many things can come against it. Your faith is a gift from God, and it can be received. If those things are in place, what you long for over here, otherwise it can be shaken. Well, we need to understand that if I want to trust a kingdom that can't be shaken, self-effort, putting trust in me, can never bring true righteousness. These are simple things, but they are profoundly true. Christ did not teach us that material riches or escapism will ever happen from suffering in, in the Christian world. This book, from beginning to end, is about those who overcome. Not by their own effort, but by that which God has established in them, because we are overcomers. And if we're choosing to live under the bounds of something that has us, then we are living in a partial, self-imposed poverty over the maturity and the provision that God has for us. To hear Amy saying, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis are doesn't matter because they can't touch her joy. It doesn't come from those stories. It doesn't come from those reports. It comes because there's something else. What are we actually hearing there? We're hearing faith. We're hearing maturity. We're hearing an understanding and a wisdom that's tied to something bigger than what a report can say. But it's a decision that Amy has made. It's a choice that we all make. So another one of these relevant truths that I put in my notes, we all need to be loosed from our natural thinking. I wish I could give you that gift tonight. I wish I could give you a gift that says that when you're trusting those things natural, you are creating for yourself a self-imposed poverty and you'll never step into the fullness of, of, of a plan that God has for you. That's the truth. But natural thinking in the church it's just run rampant. It's chronic. And again, I can tell you, and this isn't hard to tell, 
Because how many churches would you have to visit to see God do something supernatural? How far would you have to go? How many denominations would you have to sort through to find God working, changing lives on a supernatural basis even once or twice? How far would you have to go to find that? How far would you have to go to find people who are expecting that when they come to church? And remember, I spoke on this a few weeks ago. You know, Paul was telling this to Titus. That which has happened in you will always create the behavior on the outside of you. You can't separate the two. You might for a moment trying to fool somebody. But what your beliefs inside of you are always going to determine your behavior. So if I examine the behavior, it's going to tell me what's inside of you. If I examine your behaviors and there's nothing in the behaviors that are supernatural, what do I have to conclude that you believe inside you? Again, if you take on the nature of that which has been put in you, the inside will always change the outside. The inside will always determine the behaviors. Your creed will determine your conduct. When we examine the outward behavior, the outward demonstrated reality of the Christian church, to say, okay, what does that tell us that is inside them? The conclusion will be the natural thinking, the natural mind of men and women, fascinated with the knowledge of God, having very little experience with Him. What's killing us in this relationship with God? We talk and we talk and we talk and we write books and we discuss and we share testimonies of the things that we know and we go back and forth and back and forth and what are we missing? We miss experience because there's no replacement for it. When He has done and touched and been in this intimate relationship with you, and you know him, and you can hear the sound of his voice, and you experience him, I want to tell you there's something that will will move you away from concepts to whatever that experience brings. I can assure you that the experiencing God is very different than studying God. And what are we lacking? We're lacking experience. lady in my office today, I'm sharing this with her. You know, it's like she can say every correct word. She knows them back and forth and living in turmoil. Why? Because the words that she knows, the concepts that she knows about God is not sufficient because she has never experienced the level of his understanding and the level of his presence that she needs. There's nothing like experience to bring us to the place. But if we don't lose our natural thinking, we will never be the evidence of a spiritual reality. If we continue to think in the natural mind, you cannot ever expect that our lives will become evidence of a spiritual reality that God says that they're supposed to be. Paul said that he counted all natural knowledge, all that he had gained, he counted it all as rubbish. And he used a very, very strong word when he was describing what he already knew. He did not try to salvage what God said was worthless. What does he think about our natural mind that's not shaped by him, formed by him? What does he think of it? And Paul wasn't trying in the words he chose. He wasn't trying to qualify and say, well, it's okay for us to think. It's okay for us to have this natural mind. He called it what it was. And he was very clear that he, because he didn't try to salvage something that God said was worthless and neither should we. The last three verses, Revelation 6. Again, just as weird as the three right before it. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains 
and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. This is one of the reasons why I believe that it was talking about these stars falling, about this immature fruit. It goes to this particular list. Kings of the earth, great men, rich men, chief captains, mighty men, every bondman, every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Who are they hiding from? They're hiding from God. It's even strange that it's using this, the wrath of the Lamb. I haven't seen many lambs on the warpath that would be terrifying. But it is to them. It's this lamb that's opening these seals. It's the lamb that is releasing this redemptive plan. And I want to tell you, the redemptive plan of God will not fit in the natural mind. The redemptive plan will be illogical and unreasonable to the natural mind. You can't tell the natural mind to trust what the Bible says when it says, if you produce much, then you have to rest. That does not fit well in the natural mind. If you want to be free then you have to surrender. If you want to be victorious, then you have to lose. That does not fit. The redemptive reality of God will never fit with the natural mind. So we've adjusted God so many times. We've adjusted His nature. We've adjusted His wrath. We've adjusted His judgment. We have adjusted everything that can be adjusted to make Him fit with what our natural minds say that He was willing and capable of doing. So that we don't have to live in the conflict or the conviction of what the, what the Spirit says is really occurring. And on that day, those leaders, those kings, those rulers, those prominent men will be saying to those rocks, fall on us and hide us. Because I'd rather have that happen than to deal with God when I should have known the difference. That's quite a list that says they're going to be hiding from this lamb. I cannot believe that this is a literal event. I mean, said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. So again, the likelihood of survival is that word to occur. If the mountains begin to fall in. So they went to hide from the presence of the one who sits on the throne. That gives us a clue about something. Those who are hiding from him have a wrong image of him. Again, we don't have to wait and wonder if that's speaking of another day. Honestly, in the Christian world, what's the pervasive thought about the nature of God. He's what? He's angry. He's upset with us. Disappointed in us. Frustrated at us. Most of the concept of God, the image of God, it's because we started with a man and all those attributes improved them to create an image of God that was the perfect image of what we understand of men. The problem is, again, that, that mankind is variable. You can upset me by the things you do. You can make me happy or you can disappoint me. If we start with man and, and reason up to this understanding of God, we will also give him those human characteristics. And I'll make God variable so that he's reacting to me, so that I can upset him, so that I can frustrate him, or that I can make him happy. God will always respond to us. But I'm not going to do something that catches him off guard and causes him to react to me. It's not going to happen. One of the biggest changes 
in, my, in the image of God and understanding his nature was when I realized, I recognized that concept. What the Holy Spirit tells me, reveals to me about God, says that I can't disappoint him. The things that can't make him love me less. I can't make him love me more. I want to tell you, when we began to understand the nature of God, that was the most recent teaching about what the Lord's Supper was really about. That was pretty drastic for me. I can't tell you what it was like, because you had to experience it at whatever level it was hitting you. But when I left the back back here and was coming forward, and I realized that this is the dress rehearsal for a wedding that's going to happen soon, that this is the rehearsal dinner, so that it's in that rehearsal dinner we're working out within ourselves those things that we expect to happen when we're actually walking into his presence. Several years ago when our nephew Clay and his wife Sarah were getting married, uh, they got married in, the, in Mike Bickle's church in, uh, in Kansas City. One of the things they say about this building is that the inside of it, the, the measurements of it is the same size as the ark. So it's a large building. The, the doors sit way back over here and you come across the back and then this huge long aisle coming in. When she entered the back door back there, this music started and it was this, these drums. And by the time she turned the corner and Clay got his first look at her, I thought he was going down. I'm standing there beside him. I thought he was going to go down because of the moment when the bride saw the bridegroom. And the bridegroom saw the bride. You see, when I saw that in that scripture, that we were having the rehearsal for the day when we're not doing it in practice, when we're doing it in the real thing, I don't think I'll ever be able to approach this table, ever be able to approach the sacraments the same. Because I realize when I'm holding them in my hand, I am rehearsing what this moment's going to be like when I'm standing with him face to face. I don't think I'll ever be able to experience the Lord's Supper the same as I ever as, as I had in the past because of that of that revelation. What it changes the nature of God for me. Again, just seeing how, what Jesus was actually doing with the woman at the well. You know, I don't get much feedback from people who listen to the sermons on our website. I did on that one. If they listened, they pretty well made a comment. Because that one was so surprising and told everybody something about the nature of God. Something about his heart for us. His dealing with those who are broken. Those who are hiding from God have an extremely wrong image of him. After Adam sinned, what did he do? He hid. Why? Because his image of God had changed. Formerly, he had enjoyed the presence of God. But after he became a sinner, he hid. He was now afraid of God because his relationship with God had changed. What happens in us with this wrong thinking, the natural mind, the sin, and the identity of a sinner that we carry? Again, I, I wish this wasn't true, but I, but I know in the Christian world today, most of us still create two categories of sin. We will roll into one category, that sin that we know God has forgiven but we also then create this new category that says, but this is the sin I'm still struggling with. What's the truth? There's one category. What is it? It's the sin he's forgiven. If we would ever believe that, 
I think the victory over the sin that we're struggling with would be a very different one. It's sin already overcome. And it's sin that he's not beating us up over. It's amazing to me. There's no need for the struggle. That changes what we know about God. It changes our understanding of his nature, of his goodness, of what it means when he told Moses, you be still and I'll let all my goodness pass before you. We begin to recognize that goodness. Adam was now afraid of God because of the change. But instead of repenting of that disobedience and crying out for mercy, he did what most of us do. He hid. Those who hide from God usually have no desire to repent. No desire to change their mind. Instead, they cry out to the mountains. They cry out to powers that could help them. They cry out to under the understanding of men to try to give them a place to hide, and it won't help them. Where do those men who have the wrong image of God go to hide? They go hide in their own truth. They go hide in their own concepts. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for this sixth opening of this seal. And we know, Lord, that uh, it takes a little bit to get us to the seventh one as we study the next chapter. But we know, Lord, that there's stuff unfolding in this that uh, is far greater than what I can comprehend. I know, Lord, and we talk about it a lot, we know what has been taught about this. But it sure seems like you're bringing us right now to the point of what happens at the rapture. That this stuff is bringing us to a rapture story. That this is the moment when the church, the true one, will rise out of man's understanding out of man's poverty, that the church will rise out of that and that true church will be seen. And I pray, Lord, that you would find us in our maturity, that you would find us in that gathering, willing at all times to repent, willing at all times to change my mind so that I can trust and believe those things that you're telling me today that just allows me to see your nature and know your heart and grow me to the mature man that you're calling me to be and never find me fearful or stubborn that I wouldn't consider again those things that you're revealing and teaching. So we thank you, Lord, that we can recognize here that for your redemptive plan to come, we have to move away from the effect and the reality of the negative result of of the natural mind, the best thinking of men. We know what it's gotten us. We know where it's taken us. And I pray, Lord, that we would recognize in a redemptive and and restorative way, a way to rebuild as we break through that natural mind to receive the mind of Christ. And our thinking would be changed to the Spirit of God. We would see the world the way you see it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.